a lot of young people, they don't really know who St. Pope John Paul II is. You've probably heard this voice on CNA Newsroom a couple times before. It's Mario Enzler, an Italian expat and professor at the Catholic University of America. Mario served as a Swiss guard in the Vatican for four years, from 1989 to 1993. You know, they're the guys with the cool, stripy uniforms that have protected the Pope for over 500 years. He said despite such a prestigious job in such close proximity to the Pope, being a Swiss guard was, at first, kind of just a job for him. I was definitely um, a troublemaker, you know, always saying, you know, doing stuff that caused me to have to do some social time, <laughs> social services, we will call them. When Mario finally encountered Pope John Paul II face to face, it was an encounter he'll never forget. The first time I ever met him, I was in the third floor of the Apostolic Palace. They called me saying that the only father was getting out of his um, apartment. So the, the protocol is very simple, which is uh, you have to close the door of the elevator so that nobody comes out and then make sure that nobody's around. And then you just wait and you see the Pope arriving, okay, and you go up in attention. And then sometime His Holiness will stop and engage in a conversation. So sometime he will just, you know, look at you and wave and just keep going. It depends. It's not that you get off of attention and say, hey, how are you? You don't do that, right? So that, that my first, first, first time is exactly this, when he walked by and he stopped. And so I knew that I could not get off of attention until he would have said something. Okay, because that's our uh, training. You don't get out of attention until he starts talking to you. And so he said to me, you must be a new one. Okay, right in front of me. And when he said that, I came off of attention and I introduced myself. Yes, your holiness, my name is Mario Enzler. I just started it. Uh, thank you very much for uh, everything you are doing. And I look forward uh, getting to spend time here. You know, a few things, I, I don't even remember exactly everything. But he let me finish my sentence and then he, 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 you know, he shook my hand, you know, because I was out of attention. And then he grabbed my hand with both of his hands. So he kept the shock on and then he came up and then he looked at me and he said, in Italiano, but I'll tell you in English, he says, well, thank you, Mario, for serving who serves. And then he left. So that is my first encounter. And I thought, whoa, you know, he was special. He had something different. And, and you know, I didn't discuss the Summa Theologica with St. Pope John Paul II, you know. I didn't discuss, you know, uh, you know, St. Augustine, City of God. I didn't, we talked about random stuff, okay, simple things, all right. I witnessed a lot of his lecturing and so on and so forth, but my interaction, there were always simple interactions, okay. But I can promise you, every time he will be in front of me, he was really focused on just me. Like everything around him will, you know, shut down. You know, one thing that saints have is that when they talk to you, they are truly present.
Hey, everybody, you're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. Pope St. John Paul II influenced a lot of lives. He certainly influenced mine. In fact, I probably think about JP2 every day, even now, 15 years after he died. The Pope was an intellectual, a pastor, an evangelist, and most of all, it seemed just like a force of spiritual and personal energy for God. My own experience is that when John Paul II said that God is calling us to become saints, and that it's possible to become a saint, and that the world needs us to be saints, I believed him. I want to be a saint, and that's at least in part because of JP2. Today, May 18th, would have been his 100th birthday, and he died 15 years ago. So if you're young, you might not even really remember John Paul II. He might just seem like another old guy whose picture is up on the wall somewhere. Today, we wanted to show you who John Paul II was, with stories from people who knew him. A mountaineer talks about the friendship he built while hiking and skiing in the Italian Alps with John Paul II. Then we'll share the story of the Iowa man who invited the Pope to visit his farm, and how in 1979, the Pope actually did it. It's a better Iowa story than Field of Dreams, really. But before we do that, we want to take a closer look at the legacy John Paul II left behind. Here's our producer, John McKeown. George Weigel wrote the definitive biography of John Paul II back in 1999. He's the great Christian witness of our time. He's, he's the exemplar of the fact that a life wholly dedicated to Jesus Christ and the gospel is the most exciting human life possible. He was, in many ways, an unlikely candidate to change the world. He was born on May 18, 1920, in Wadowice, Poland, to a fairly humble family. His father, also named Carol, was a Polish army lieutenant, and his mother, Emilia, was a school teacher. Young Carol had an older brother, Edmund, who was 14 years his senior. He also had a sister, Olga, who unfortunately died shortly after her birth. Carol was bright. He was an athlete, a good student, and an aspiring actor. But in 1939, everything changed as the Nazis invaded. The Germans thrust into Poland from the west and north. In two weeks, the Polish army had virtually ceased to exist. Warsaw was one of the few places... The occupation forces in Poland closed the university that Carroll was attending. And Carroll had to work in a quarry for four years, and then in a chemical factory to earn his living and to avoid being deported to Germany. Interestingly, this makes him the first pope, at least in modern times, to have worked as a laborer. Even before the invasion of his homeland, Carroll was no stranger to tragedy. He lost his entire immediate family while still a young man. His mother died in 1929. His older brother Edmund, who was a doctor, died in 1932. And finally, his father died in 1941. So, by age 21, Carol was alone, at least family-wise. But the very next year, aware of his call to the priesthood, he secretly began courses in the seminary of Krakow, run by the archbishop. 
After World War II ended, he continued his studies at the major seminary of Krakow once it had reopened. He was ordained to the priesthood in Krakow on November 1, 1946. As a young priest, he was famous for leading camping trips into the mountains of Poland. On January 13, 1964, Pope Paul VI appointed him Archbishop of Krakow. As Archbishop, among many other things, he took part in the Second Vatican Council. Pope Paul later named him a Cardinal on June 26, 1967. In 1978, Pope John Paul I died after barely a month as Pope. That same year, the conclave elected Cardinal Wartila, the first non-Italian Pope in over 400 years, and the first ever from a Slavic country. At age 58, John Paul II was relatively young for a Pope, he was also more vital and fitter than many of the popes that had come before him. Love is the only basis for human relationships. He would go on to visit 129 countries during his pontificate, including many that no pope had ever been to before. For decades, George Weigel has chronicled John Paul II's engagement with the world. Uh, he was willing to be a risk taker, uh, but he also appreciated that prudence is the greatest of political virtues. John Paul met with dozens of world leaders, including Ronald Reagan, just a few days before Reagan called on Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. He did not think of himself as the sovereign of a European microstate dealing with other sovereign political actors. He thought of himself as the universal pastor of the Catholic Church dealing with sovereign political actors who were as subject to the universal moral law as anybody else. I think he also had a very shrewd sense of political possibility, of when to press hard uh, in defense of human rights, when to accept a prudential accommodation, because that's the best you can get at the moment. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a powerful combination of principle and prudence. I think one of the most striking of these episodes, which I recount in Witness to Hope, was with Andrei Sakharov, the, the great Soviet physicist and human rights uh, campaigner, uh, who met with the Pope in the Vatican and kind of went to confession to the Pope in the sense of unburdening himself uh, of a series of, of questions about his own public life that his wife, Elena Bonner, suggested that he discuss with John Paul II because this is, she said to him, this may be the only place in the world you can talk about these things. So that kind of priestly approach to world politics and political leaders, I think was quite characteristic of, of John Paul II. 
The Pope's primary impact on world affairs, Weigel says, was his central role in encouraging the so-called revolution of conscience, which made possible the nonviolent revolution of 1989 in Central and Eastern Europe and the subsequent collapse of the Soviet Union. We talked a bit about this a couple weeks ago on the podcast. If you look at the 50-some uh, texts of John Paul II's first pilgrimage to Poland in June 1979, the nine days that really change the course of 20th century history. Uh, it's not that he didn't talk about politics primarily. He didn't talk about politics at all. Catholics in Poland had already endured a lot of persecution from the communist regime, which had ruled the country ever since the Nazis invaded in 1939. Poland, swallowed by Germany and Russia, disappeared into a new dark age. Arrests, deportations, executions began. It's estimated that at least 3,000 priests died as martyrs in Poland in the 50 years of Nazi and communist regimes. Still, the Pope's visit in 1979 was a galvanizing event for Catholics in the country, especially those associated with the Solidarity Trade Union, the party which would eventually, and largely peacefully, take the reins of power away from the communists in 1989. He spoke to his people about Polish culture, about what made Poland Poland. And at the center of that, of course, in addition to a distinctive history, a distinctive language, distinctive literature, was the intensity of Poland's Catholic faith. John Paul II had a remarkable capacity to encourage, Weigel said, in the sense of stirring up the courage that is within everybody. He essentially said to his people, if you reclaim the truth of who you are, you will find tools of resistance that these brutal materialists can't match because they can't deal with nonviolent spiritual power. And that, of course, turned out to be uh, exactly uh, right. John Paul II canonized more men and women than any pope previously, creating some 482 saints. He also promulgated the Catechism of the Catholic Church in 1992, and he created World Youth Days, presiding over 19 of them as Pope. He also wrote several books, 14 encyclicals, and some of his speeches have been turned into books as well, such as the series of catechesis he delivered, which are now collectively known as the Theology of the Body. John Paul II's Theology of the Body has had uh, a significant influence on the development of moral theology, it's had a significant influence pastorally on marriage preparation and on high school and college level catechesis. It's even had an influence on elementary school catechesis. There's some remarkable uh, things going on uh, translating this way of thinking about uh, being a human being in a Catholic context uh, for kids. Mario also mentioned the Pope's many writings and speeches. In 27 years of pontificate, okay, for sure he either wrote or talked about many of the topics that uh, we are somehow trying to understand. Let's just find and see what he said. <laughs> he and his wife have found the encyclical Ex Corde Ecclesia especially helpful. 
It's the encyclical he wrote in 1990 about Catholic education, and it was helpful to Mario and his wife as they founded a classical school in New Hampshire. Beyond his writings, Mario said he also hopes that people will remember the Pope's commitment to prayer. I would say that in a thousand years, he will be remembered because of his simplicity. Yes, fair, you know, prayers, love for God, you know, for is uh, fearless for having shown us that suffering is okay, okay, for for having proved to us that uh, we have to understand that uh, we have to be grateful for for everything we have. Christian discipleship is the way to live life with the undivided heart with which everyone instinctively wants to live and to live life not as one humdrum thing after another but as a great adventure for cna newsroom i'm jonah mckeown We'll be right back. We get it. You read a lot of news. Uh, you read a lot of church news, and probably you want to talk about it, but. Probably not a lot of people want to nerd out with you about church news each week, but we do. If you want an inside Catholic conversation about the life of the church from a Catholic perspective, we're here for you with a podcast called CNA Editor's Desk. Every week, Ed and I sit down together to talk about the most important Catholic news of the week. We offer our analysis and opinions. And we talk about how the news even helps us in our call to become holy. And we play games because, yes, we are here to amuse you. So if you like Catholic News Agency's coverage of Catholic news around the world, you're going to love CNA Editor's Desk. Each week, we will break down the stories you want to talk about. If you're listening to CNA Newsroom right now on your phone's podcast app, open that app right now and search for CNA Editor's Desk. Then hit the subscribe button so you will never miss an episode when it drops each and every Friday. And now... Back to the episode. It's pretty well known that John Paul II had a great love for the outdoors. The Pope visited Denver, where we produced this podcast for World Youth Day in 1993. And even on that trip, he made time to hike and pray in the Rocky Mountains, which, if we ever return to our office again, we can see from our office. In our next segment, an Italian mountaineer who went on skiing and hiking trips with St. John Paul II talks about the time he shared with the Pope. CNA's Deputy Editor-in-Chief Michelle Rosa has the story. In an undated photograph, Italian mountaineer Lino Zani grins at the camera while standing at the summit of Cho Oyu Mountain in Tibet. The 26,000-foot summit is the sixth highest in the world. He's wearing a bright red snowsuit. Ice picks mark the path he followed. He holds up a small wooden cross, a cross given to him by his friend, St. John Paul II. Every time I would go to climb a mountain, 
he would give me a cross to carry with me to the peak. The tradition began back in September of 1984. Lino visited Rome for the first time that year, at the Pope's invitation. From that day, he began to give me crosses to carry to the summits of the highest mountains in the world. The last two I brought to the North Pole and South Pole in 2001. He wanted me to carry these two crosses to the edge of the world. The pair had met only a few months earlier, in July of 1984, when a lodge run by Lino's family was selected to host the Pope's next secret ski trip. John Paul II had learned of the lodge from a letter sent by a friend of Lino's. The friend worked as a ski instructor in the summer. He wrote to the Pope about the beauty of the lodge and the surrounding Alps. John Paul asked his longtime friend and personal secretary, Monsignor Stanislaw to visit the lodge. After the visit, they told us we will organize it in one month, and it was decided the Pope would take his vacation July 16th through the 18th at this lodge, 10,000 feet high in the Alps on Mount Adamello. The Pope's ski trips were kept secret, and for good reason. If the trips became public knowledge, people might travel to see the beloved Pope. It could become a risk to his safety. But even with the secrecy, word got out to Italy's then-president, Sandro Pertini, and it was agreed that the president would join the Pope for the first day of the trip. So on that spot, on July 16, the president of the Italian Republic, Sandro Pertini, and the Holy Father both arrived. Lino was 24 at the time. He had heard of John Paul II, particularly about the attempt on his life in 1981, but this was the first time he had met the Pope. John Paul II arrived at the lodge by helicopter. When the Holy Father stepped down, I went to meet him and to kiss his ring to kneel. Instead, he took my hands and said, Lino, help the president, it's better. He said this because the president was 82 years old. Plus, because of the president, we all had to help the president's staff. The staff had come from Rome, as you would dress in Rome in July with a light jacket and tie, fancy shoes with leather soles, on a glacier that was nearly 10,000 feet high, and they were also on foot. Poor guys. And so this beautiful and direct relationship with the Holy Father began right away. Right away, I felt at ease with the Holy Father. Lino said it felt like he was interacting with a priest from his hometown, not a pope. This really beautiful friendship began from those days spent on Mount Adamello, summer skiing on the glacier. John Paul II was a seasoned skier. He had earned the nickname Daredevil of the Tatras because of his skiing in the Tatra mountain range in Poland. He didn't have much need for a ski instructor, but for someone who could accompany him skiing on a glacier, who knew the terrain and wouldn't let him fall into crevices. So I was ahead, plowing the way, and when we knew there wasn't any danger, he would follow behind alone. The trip was supposed to last three days, but the third day was canceled because news of the trip got out. It was no longer a secret, but it wouldn't be Lino's last trip with the Pope. Beginning in 1985, 
Every winter for nine years on Tuesdays, when he was not traveling the world, we would go skiing. Tuesday is traditionally the Pope's day off. At Campo Felice, at Ovindoli, at Campo Imperatore, in the region of Abruzzo mostly, at Terminillo. All places close to Rome. Lino said he and the Pope continued these ski trips until the spring of 1994, when John Paul II fell at the Vatican and broke his leg. From then on, we only did excursions on foot. And so the vacations, the days spent with the Holy Father, went more or less like this. When we would go on these trips, these secret ski trips, no one knew anything. He needed only a friend, a companion that helped with the skiing and hiking. Lino said it wasn't too difficult to keep the trips a secret, because they gave him the chance to share some beautiful moments of skiing and prayer with the extraordinary Pope. When he was in the mountains, he would find space and a way to stop and to pray. He liked to stay for hours, sitting on a rock or in the grass, contemplating the peak of the mountain, contemplating the whole world, infinity. So I too had these remarkable moments of prayer. If I may, they were maybe the most beautiful moments of my life. It was there, being with this man, this saint, in his prayer. When he wasn't traveling with the Pope, Lino was exploring some of the highest peaks and most remote places in the world. When he returned to Italy, he would meet with John Paul II to tell the Pope about his latest trip. The Holy Father wanted to know exactly how the expedition went. He wanted to know everything. Lino found a kindred spirit in John Paul II, the adventurous Pope from Poland. He said that besides the Pope's love for skiing and the outdoors, John Paul was also an incredible friend. The special thing was that he knew how to listen. He had this way of taking your hands, of looking at you, that was perhaps the most beautiful thing about His Holiness, that he knew how to listen and how to say a word to everyone. In his final years, when he was so sick, he would open his eyes and would look at us with such a powerful and profound gaze. And you went away as if you had received the greatest grace you could ever hope to receive. He left really an important impression on my life. He left an important impression on anyone's life, but especially on anyone who met him, who lived with him, who knew him, who was with him. Lino said John Paul II taught him how to connect with God, how to pray in any situation, even on the toughest expeditions. This is how he changed me, when he taught me. He gave me strength to continue to believe and to go on. I went to his last general audience in 2004 in St. Peter's Square on December 29. We greeted each other and he squeezed my hand. And with effort he told me how he wanted to return to the beautiful days we passed together. And he said to me, Lino, our Mount Adamello, and with great effort, he said how he wanted to return. (laughs) 
Lino was able to attend the funeral, beatification, and canonization of his dear friend, St. John Paul II. Today, Lino works as a television producer and still has a great love for the outdoors. He writes about his memories skiing and hiking with the Pope in his book, The Secret Life of John Paul II. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Michelle LaRosa. This next story is about Iowa. And I'm from Nebraska, so it pains me to tell a story about good news in Iowa. We do not usually like those guys. But this story was just too cool to pass up. Still, as a measure of state pride, I'm wearing a Nebraska Cornhusker shirt while recording this. Our story starts one summer evening in 1979. Joe Hayes sits at his dining room table in Madison County, Iowa. Joe is writing a letter to his Pope, John Paul II. Joe had seen on the news that Pope John Paul II would make his first trip to the United States that fall. The visit included stops in Boston, New York City, Philadelphia, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. Joe thought the Pope should get out of those big cities and see America's heartland. So he decided he'd extend an invitation. At first, When he uh, wrote the letter, of course, a lot of people thought, oh, you know, Joe, this is (laughs) never going to happen. You know, Uh, it's a long shot, uh, if that. This is Father Dan Kirby. He was Joe's pastor for a time. But yet he had tremendous uh, trust, at least, at least that the, the, the Holy See, the Holy Father, at least give it a good reading, you know. Joe handed his letter to his bishop at a parish dinner a few days later. Joe remembered his bishop looking at him like he was crazy. But then... Bishop was at his house one evening. He said, well, why can't the Pope come to Iowa? He's going to New York and, and he's going to Boston and Philadelphia and Chicago. Why can't he come to Des Moines? This is Monsignor Frank Bagnano. He's a priest in the Diocese of Des Moines. Long story short, uh, the bishop sits down and writes a letter to the Pope, you might say, uh, through the United States Catholic Conference and basically laid out 10 reasons why the Pope should come to Des Moines, Iowa. It's not Nebraska, but still, Iowa is the breadbasket of America. It's rural. Oh, and one of John Paul II's oldest friends lived in Iowa for a time. Monsignor Lagudi worked in the Vatican for years and was a friend of Pope John Paul before Pope John Paul was the Pope. And so anyway, so, uh, uh, when the bishop writes in there, well, by the way, Monsignor Luigi Laguti is a priest of our diocese, Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, I, we think that's when the lights went on. <laughs> it was decided Iowa would be added to the Pope's itinerary. What they did is they cut like two hours out of Philadelphia and three hours out of Chicago and gave us five hours. And so he flew from Philadelphia to Des Moines, Des Moines to Chicago. That's how it went. The diocese had six weeks to plan the papal visit, and the bishop put Monsignor Bagnano in charge. So we had six weeks when he said, you're on, guys. We said, got it, no problem, which, by the way, was a blessing because we didn't have time to argue. In fact, I told everybody, I said, look, I said, I had all, you know, different people working on different parts of this thing. I said, look, here's the deal. You all are going to hate me by the end of this thing. Because I, because I will be making executive decisions. We're not going to have time to hold hands and get consensus. You know, we, we don't have time for that. Um, 
wonderful as it is, we don't have time for it. So I will make executive decisions. You will all hate me, but we're going to get this thing done. Monsignor Bagnano and the bishop met with Iowa's governor the next day. And the governor's a great guy. Oh, what a peach of a guy. He said, absolutely, we've got it covered. And he put Colonel Thompson in charge of the thing. And Colonel Thompson, head of the National Guard, Colonel Thompson said, we're going to run this like a war. Uh, So he said, we will have people everywhere. We're going to build bridges. We're going to create roads. We're going to tear down stuff. So anyway, so so the National Guard took over. And uh, what a... The interstate uh, was 235 was closed. That was used for a parking lot. Can you imagine? John Paul II arrived in Des Moines on October 4th. The Feast of St. Francis, by the way. The Pope wasn't going to go to Joe's actual farm, even though that would have been really cool. There just wasn't enough time. Instead, he took a helicopter about 20 miles to St. Patrick's Church in Des Moines' historic Irish settlement. St. Patrick's is the oldest parish in the diocese, and it's really small, with only about 50 families. It could only hold, hold uh, I think, 100 people, not even that. But anyway, when the Pope went went down the middle aisle to go up to the front to sit down and give his talk, I, I know the security people said, well, you know, we, we ought to put ropes, we ought to put security ropes along the side of those pews so that nobody gets out on the aisle. I said, you don't know these people. Let me tell you something. They are going to shy away from him like you. They won't even get, want to get near him because they're very humble people. They, they would back off, back away from, a, from an important person. So that's how it was. They, we had to almost encourage them to shake hands with the Pope, you know. John Paul II then took another helicopter ride about 10 miles north to Living History Farms, a 500-acre open-air museum of farming and settlement. Des Moines had a population of less than 200,000 at the time. But John Paul II was met by a crowd of 350,000 people. People thought this was probably going to be the only trip he'll ever make to the United States. This was his first trip to the U.S. And everybody thought, well, this is it, you know. So we had people bust in, buses coming from Denver, buses coming from Kansas City, from uh, Minneapolis, Omaha, everywhere. People were, get, were coming to Des Moines because they thought, this is it, you know. This is, instead of going to Rome to see the Pope, we're going to Des Moines because that'll be our only chance to ever see a guy, you know. John Paul II celebrated Mass that day. He preached about stewardship and care for creation. He praised American farmers who he said God had entrusted with some of the earth's best land. Joe, his wife, and their children brought the bread and wine to the Pope during the offertory procession for the Mass. The Pope blessed the forehead of one of Joe's sons who had developmental disabilities. All in all, Pope John Paul II was only in Iowa for about five hours but the trip had a lasting impact. For our little uh, rural diocese, you know, our little rural diocese, it was just really unbelievable. And uh, we just thought with great pride it was that he came and had mass in our our diocese, uh, was able to go and visit one of our parishes and speak intimately with the people. So we came away with great humility, but with great pride that he was able to, we, we were the beneficiaries of this great gift. I mean, I'd heard later on that he really liked our venue probably the best. In this sense, he's with his people, farmers, common folk. Joe died last year. He was 78, but his legacy lives on.
he's remembered as uh, as a great knight, a great parishioner, a great friend, um, and someone who really valued the importance of God's creation and being a good steward of the land. You know, sometimes we think, oh, what can one person do? What can one person, how can one person make an effect? Does it really make a difference? Well, think of the, that farmer in, in rural Iowa had that idea of writing a letter, you know, and because he wrote that letter, he changed uh, history, history in the diocese. So tremendous. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and John McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks to CNA's Rome correspondent, Hannah Brockhouse, and to all of our guests on this week's episode. See you next week. <laughs>